We're here to look at John 3.16, one of the most searched Bible passages out there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Some people think this verse is the core of Christian doctrine, but what does it mean? Is it saying, as some people assert, that anyone who isn't Christian, who doesn't believe in Christ, is condemned? And that brings up these broader questions. Is our divine creator exclusive? Does our creator have a home team that he really focuses on and is hands-off about the welfare of millions of people doing their best to follow the precepts of the different non-Christian religions they were raised in and the principles they were taught? What does believing in him really mean? If all people have to do to receive eternal life is say, I believe in Jesus, then the New Testament could have been a lot shorter. What would be the point of all those teachings of Jesus and all the stories of what Jesus did? And looking at what he did, what can Jesus' life and actions teach us about how we should live and act and view others? The most admirable humans are those who care about and help people, regardless of their race or religion or background. For God to be God, his love has to transcend all the kinds of love and kindness that we could muster as finite humans. God is the source of unconditional love, not exclusivity. Divine love is looking at the intentions of a person's heart rather than their intellectual beliefs. Yes, we've lost the meaning of what believe in really means. If you believe in a cause, you don't just think about it or talk about it, you live it. Jesus was all about action. He is the way, the truth, and the life because he modeled a life of healing, forgiveness, compassion, courage, and integrity. And to believe means to live the same kind of life. People can live the life that Jesus taught even if they've never heard of him, because God has provided the basics for developing all those admirable qualities in all religions. Living a life of sincere goodness is what connects with God and heaven. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, Jesus said that those who reach out to help others in need are also doing that action for him. He doesn't mention a need to think certain ideas about him, but instead to reach out and help others in order to enter heaven. Jesus' life shows us the Father, demonstrating that it is people's hearts and intentions that God is concerned about, rather than their outer actions, doctrines, and circumstances. I know this interpretation of John 3.16 raises the question, then what was the point of the crucifixion? For that, see our show, Why Did Jesus Suffer and Die? And to get more background on how we got to this interpretation, in light of the revelation from Matthew 13, 34, he did not say anything without using a parable. CR shows it is damaging to understand the Bible literally, and Jesus wants us to seek the deeper meaning of his words. But now let's really equip ourselves to understand John 3:16 by unpacking how divine love is not exclusive and that action is true belief. And we'll take a look at what following Jesus' example really means. Divine love is not exclusive. I mean, come anyone could have told you that. That's the opposite of divine love. When you think of God over everything, of course God, it's, it's God's idea to have all of us here in the first place. That We are all moved by the idea that God is this great love that transcends, of course, wherever you are, God is reaching out to you. There's no way that John 3.16 means that God's 
love or salvation is contingent on you having a particular piece of information. That doesn't make sense. But what what could it really be? That's what we want to dig into. This idea of God loving everyone is an idea that you get in a lot of traditions, but some religious systems do advocate exclusivity, including some strains of Christianity. But I would say there's a lot in the Bible that actually pushes back against that, including a story that is very clearly about God looking for, looking beyond religious boundaries. And this, uh, we'll tell it to you now to illustrate this concept. This is a story from Acts 10. It's when Peter meets Cornelius. Do you know it? Well, this is it's actually a good one to carry around in your pocket because it's got such a cool message in it. After the scene is set after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the apostles were beginning their work of spreading the teachings of Jesus. And during that time, Peter received a vision that was teaching him not to go about this with a spirit of exclusiveness and judgment. So we start actually with a devout non-Christian named Cornelius. This is Acts 10, 1-2. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. Now, not the Christian tradition, but he was doing his tradition well. But I'm sure angels are going to come down and set him straight, right? Angel appeared and says, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Oh, so it looks like that's a currency that heaven accepts this guy's actions out of his heart. The angel told Cornelius to send for a man named Simon Peter. Okay, maybe you've heard of him. Meanwhile, Peter, while this is happening, was praying and he fell into a trance. And in that trance, he saw a vision. And this is a vision all kinds of animals. There were birds, reptiles, including animals that Jews were forbidden to eat according to their religious principles. And then the voice of God comes in. So we've got all these animals, including some that you're not supposed to eat. The voice of the Lord comes in and, and he doesn't say, hey, Peter, I, I love you so much. I'm, I'm taking care of you. He says, eat these animals. And Peter says, no, no, I'm not going to eat these because that, I'm not going to eat anything that's unclean according to my religious principles. And the voice said, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. So there is Peter saying, look, God, you can't dissuade me from my religion. Religion is the pursuit of God. And here's God saying, and it actually repeats it three times, this message, eat the animals. But it, it's strange. And it can't really be that God wants Peter to change his diet like that, or that that's worth a vision. Peter doesn't get what it means at first, but what he knew is that there's no way this is literal. There, there must be more to this. If you see the last show we just put out on this channel, the Bible is always teaching us in metaphor, or what Swedenborg called correspondences, and Peter sensed that, that that's how the divine talks. He didn't get the message at first, but he would come to understand it through what happened next. Because suddenly Cornelius, you remember him from the beginning, good guy, his messengers arrived looking for Peter. And Peter heard the voice of God's Spirit saying, look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So yeah, clear your calendar. These people are here for a reason. Okay, so he does it. Peter ends up going to the house of Cornelius. When he arrived, Cornelius bowed down on the ground before him. So, so totally showing deference and humility. And Peter's like, oh, don't do that. I'm just a person just like you. 
Peter found many others gathered there at the house of Cornelius, and he said to them all, and this shows what comes out of his mouth here, that he now understands what the vision means. He says, You yourselves know that it's unlawful for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, which all these people were Gentiles. So he's saying, Look, this is against the laws of my tradition, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Oh, so it wasn't about eating the animals. It was the people, and not saying some people are inherently unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I truly understand, and this, look at this sentence, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So now we do have a little bit of differentiation, right? That there is a path toward God and a path away. Not, I would argue, that God stops loving you if you don't take that path, but you just are shutting God out. But what's the dividing line? It's not, have you heard the name Jesus Christ? It's not, have you said something or made a commitment? It's, are you living, you fear God and live the life that's acceptable? Whatever your nation or your religion, that's what the message God had communicated directly through this vision, in this core, uh, in this core doctrine or script of Christianity, and this is what Swedenborg says he learned from Jesus as well. This is from Heaven and Hell, three eighteen. Non Christians are born just as human as people within the church. Oh, thank you. Who are in fact few by comparison. So this is Swedenborg talking to his seventeen hundreds audience, saying, "Look." There's no way it's just about us. Even though there is value in the truths of Christianity and there's, there's some real core truths that are alive there, we're just a teeny bit of the population. And he continues, The Lord is actually love itself, and His love is an intent to save everyone. So, so what does He provide? Does He provide that everyone knows Christianity? So He provides that everyone shall have some religion, an acknowledgement of the divine being through that religion and an inner life. Okay, so that they'll have religion and inner life based on acknowledgement of the divine being. So what is an inner life? That is, living according to one's religious principles, ah, asked and answered, is an inner life. But then we focus on the divine. Why set up these seemingly artificial, you've got to have principles? This is to get us to focus on the divine. And to the extent that we do focus on the divine, how do you focus on the divine? You live by your, your moral principles. We do not focus on the world, but move away from the world, and therefore from a worldly life, which is an outward life. Not that you're not interacting in the world and living in society, but your goals are the same. You're not being driven to things by your passions and your ego and whatever else else it is that you're struggling with. This is about what I'm doing is, is following God as I see God. And that is what the believing in Him in John 3.16 means. Anyone who believes in these principles, because Jesus is the embodiment of that love. In fact, Swedenborg saw that many non-Christians in the afterlife actually had an easier time of accepting the life of heaven than many of the Christians. Yeah, because Swedenborg was famous for going to see those who had passed on, and he said, what's it like? It's actually, it could be tough if you focused more on ideas than living a life of goodness and kindness. If you've latched on to this idea that, look, it doesn't matter if you're a good person or not. What matters is you have the right doctrine, and we have the right doctrine, so why are you letting those people in? That actually, that, that's the antithesis of this universal divine love, and that causes problems in the afterlife. 
Whereas re regardless of whether or not the facts of your religious tradition line up with how reality is structured, if you're focusing on that love for the human race, you get it and you accept that life of heaven that is the, the path to God much more easily. So let's let that love lead us and, and see that as really the hallmark of belief. I'm really struck by what Peter learned in this story. First, that he shouldn't judge anyone as unclean or profane from his own understanding. And also, in Peter's words, that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God didn't send Peter to Cornelius to save a Gentile from damnation. Peter had something to learn here. From his own understanding, Peter would have disapproved of Cornelius and refused to meet with him. But in God's eyes, Cornelius was already clean, already connected to God through his good heart and his good way of life. God was already pleased with Cornelius. Information about God shouldn't be used like a team sport where somebody is trying to win over somebody else. <laughs> it's precious. It's a precious thing that should be unconditionally shared um, with a humble heart. So Peter did tell this whole room full of people at Cornelius's house the story of Jesus Christ, and they loved the story. They do end up wanting to be baptized. But this was not a matter of salvation or lack thereof. The story of Jesus was an enhancement to their already existing belief in God's goodness. Jesus is God incarnate, God's love embodied. And from love, Jesus wants all people to connect with him, first and foremost, through goodness in the heart and a life of genuine goodness. Action is true belief. What does it really mean to believe in something? You usually, if you are really believing in something, you associate that with doing something. You can't say, I believe in the sacredness of, of ethical business, and then you charge somebody double what you really should. Or you say, I believe in maintaining a clean marine environment, and then you dump all of your trash in the ocean. You don't believe that. You don't believe in it. it. Doesn't matter if if two two things have clicked in your mind and you have. It's about what you do. To really believe in something is to devote yourself to the cause. So believing in Jesus, what does it mean to believe in Him? It's not just. It's not believing that He exists, or that He did something. It is devoting yourself to what Jesus is. This is Apocalypse Explained 295. To believe in the name of the Lord means to live our lives according to the principles of his teachings. Like, this is something that I believe in so strongly that I'm rearranging my life uh, in accord with that. And just, a, you know, you just got to take my word for it. A couple of verses down from John 3.16, we get that believing really means living a life of goodness. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. So our interface with the light is all about deeds. It's all about what we do. 
And loving Jesus is all about deeds. As Jesus said, this is in John 14, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. It's actually the focus is, what do you do, rather than do you have this piece of information or not in your head? Okay, all right, so then let's do it. Let's keep the commandments. So, but what is that? What, what are Jesus' commandments? How do we keep them? Well, in some, he's, he's pretty explicit about what he wants us to do. In summary, from the Gospels, don't judge other people. Practice forgiveness and mercy always. Find ways to love everyone, including your enemies. Resist hatred, anger, and vengeance. Find ways to reconcile with one another. Resist lust and greed. Resist arrogance and hypocrisy. Trust in God and in higher goals. That's the, the Cliff Notes version of what Jesus is telling us to do. And why does he spend so much time telling us what to do? It must be important. This is those principles giving us that inner life. This is what binds us to heaven. And that can be done. You can find principles like those in any faith tradition. This is Secrets of Heaven 34. People who have love also have faith and consequently heavenly life. The same cannot be said of those who claim to have faith but do not lead a loving life. You can, I'm religious. If you're not doing those kinds of things, if you're not guided by these principles based on love, it's not It's not the life of faith. A life of faith without love is like sunlight without warmth, the type of light that occurs in winter when nothing grows and everything droops and dies. Faith rising out of love, on the contrary, like Cornelius who was doing all that stuff out of love, is like light from the sun in the spring when everything grows and flourishes. Non-belief and belief without love are in fact compared to winter by the Lord in Mark, where he made predictions concerning the close of the age. Pray that your flight not occur in winter, as those will be days of distress. There, Jesus' words, he's using the same correspondences like in the vision of all the different animals. Why does it matter if if you're talking about the end of the world, are you, and and winter? Why does it matter what season it is? This has to do with the love or the non-love, that you want to be in love before you cross over to the spiritual world. The flight refers to the final days and to an individual's final days before death as well. Winter is a life devoid of love. So, applying love to life is forging a relationship with the Lord. It's working together with someone, caring about the same things, that actually leads to a bonding relationship, rather than just knowing facts about the person. One way this comes alive for me is with books. I've read a lot of books by great authors, but you know the ones I remember, that I feel really connected to? They're the ones whose interests overlap with mine. And not just in an intellectual way, but it gets solidified with action. They're more vivid and real in my mind when I'm acting on that same interest. It's like use it or lose it. The sense of connection is there the more I'm engaged in acting on the interest. In the same way, whoever cares about the same things that the Lord cares about, like forgiveness, compassion, or healing, and acts on those goals is already in a relationship with the Lord, no matter what the religious doctrines are that give form to that love that is at the core. Following Jesus' example. So if John 3.16 really is all about this true belief in Jesus that's accessible universally, it means taking action and following the example or the essence of Jesus' life, what does it really mean to follow this example? There's two major motivations competing for access to our lives, and they have to do 
with this exclusivity because the first motivation is exclusive love for ourselves or our own group. Swedenborg called this the love of self and said this is really the head of all evils. The second kind of love, though, that's trying to come in comes out of God and is love for the whole human race. Jesus actually came to fight against the first one and embody the second one. Some people interpret John 3.16 as supporting exclusivity because we've heard of Jesus and you haven't heard of Jesus. We're select, elect people. But what does Jesus' life actually support? Here is a plethora of examples of him fighting against this in-group mentality. In Matthew 19, verses 13 to 14, when his disciples thought Jesus shouldn't be bothered with all these kids running around, Jesus said, they have to not prevent the children from coming to him. He laid his hands on the children in blessing. So the children are in. In Matthew 8, verses 1 to 4, Jesus immediately reached out to touch and heal a leper. And remember, lepers were people who were shunned and considered untouchable. He didn't reject anyone who came to him for help. John 4, though the Jews and Samaritans refused to associate with each other, Jesus asked a Samaritan woman for a drink of water and talked with her at length. Luke 10, 25 to 37, he, and he also made a Samaritan the hero of his famous parable, the Good Samaritan, while telling the story to a crowd of people who disapproved of Samaritans. So he's saying, you know those people you don't like? Here's a story about one of them being the hero. <laughs> Matthew 8, 5 to 13, Jesus immediately agreed to heal the servant of a Roman centurion, though the Romans were hated by the Jews at the time. John 8, 1 through 11, when a crowd was ready to execute a woman for committing adultery, Jesus challenged them to look within their own hearts to see if they were free of sin. To the woman, he spoke forgiveness, encouraged her to live differently. Maybe the most famous case of Jesus saying, no, I don't, I don't condemn you. Luke 7, 36, though Jesus confronted many teachings of the Pharisees, when one invited him to dine, Jesus willingly went to dine with him. It wasn't just, no, you're the Pharisees, you're my enemies. Oh, you want me to come over? That's great. Yes, I'm going to speak against harmful concepts that you're putting out, but if you want to hang out, let's hang out. In Luke 7, 37 to 50, there's a woman who had committed many sins, was washing his feet with her tears. And when people around were saying, Don't, you know, if you knew who she was, he didn't reject her. He spoke about the great love in her heart, despite everything in her past. Luke 19, 1-9, Jesus chose to visit the house of a tax collector who had cheated people. Jesus recognized his regret and his value beneath the mistakes. Actually, all Jesus' actions seem to be about loving outside your group. It's a landslide. This is obviously somebody who came to instill in people the idea that you love the human race and you reach out to them wherever, whenever possible. It's really only some of Jesus' words that could give people the idea that he's talking about an us and them. But you got to remember, and I quote, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables, and he did not say anything to them without using a parable. Just like before, eat the different animals. We don't, we can't hang on the words and use those to go against the spirit of the life of Jesus. The way to understand the parable is to look at the words from the spirit of love that Jesus embodied. Secrets of Heaven 2385, love for the Lord and charity for our neighbor are the essential ingredients of all theology and worship. What, what does it take to make up a theology or a system of worship? I bet you thought it was, you know, knowing the rituals and knowing the ideas. It's love for the Lord and charity for the neighbor. That is the core of it all. If we took this as a premise, 
our minds would then be enlightened by vast numbers of passages in the Word that otherwise lie hidden in the murk of false assumptions. In fact, heresy would then vanish. That's how you can get rid of wrong thinking religiously, is to put love at the center. All the churches would join into one, and no matter how great the differences in doctrinal teachings derived from this premise or pointing to it, and no matter how great the differences in ritual, if this were how matters now stood, we would all be ruled by the Lord as a single person. Not that we're going to eliminate religious or cultural diversity. It's there, but they're all connected because they're all sharing in the same love, even if the ideas and forms are different, which is how it is. But even in the body, as Swedenborg goes on, we would be like members and organs of a single body, which, although they differ in form and function, are still connected to a single heart on which they all depend, each in its own form, each different from the next. Then no matter what our theology or what our outward form of worship, we would each say, you are my kin. I see that you worship the Lord and that you are a good person. And that is what the angel said to Cornelius. That's what Peter said to Cornelius. It's what we can say. It's like, okay, I've got this belief that um, we're both going after the right thing and God sees that. Jesus wants us to follow his example of love and service. He didn't come into the world to do a performance on a stage and have us applaud wildly and admire him. He wants us to do as he did. And he makes this clear in John 13, for example. After the meal, he got up, took off his garments, wrapped a towel around himself, put water in a basin, washed the disciples' feet, and then dried them with the towel that he was wearing. And he said explicitly as he was doing that, I've set you an example that you also should do as I have done. And later in that same chapter, he says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And why did he urge this? It's because neighborly love and service, when our minds and hearts and hands are working together actively for others, that's when we are connected with eternal life. Action is true belief. If you believe in a cause, you don't just talk about it, you live it. And one of the, I think, the crucial things that we learned today is that people can live the life that Jesus taught, even if they've never heard of him, because God has provided the basics to that in all religions. So people who've never heard of Jesus can still believe in Jesus. Living that life is what connects with the Lord, this life of sincere goodness guided by the principles that you think are right and true. That's what connects us with heaven. Now look at Jesus' example. He went to people whom the religious disapproved of and avoided. He was always looking for ways to reach people's hearts. Didn't matter where they were. He wanted to connect with them. He saw everybody as valuable and worth his attention and his time and his kindness. He tried to help everybody. That's what he was. He was just a helping machine. And he confronted injustice and arrogance, but he wasn't just doing that to, even to attack just the Pharisees. He was urging everyone to examine their own hearts rather than condemn others. Isn't that moving quote about like how I'd long to gather you uh, under my wings about the, the Pharisees? Divine love is not exclusive. It's the opposite. Divine love is looking at the intention of a person's heart rather than their intellectual beliefs. What are they trying to do? And even if they're not trying to do something great, how can I help them see the light? 
And in fact, any intellectual beliefs we hold, are you ready for this? They disappear in the afterlife because it's really our love that dictates it. We did a whole show called Our Love, Not Our Intelligence Makes Us Who We Are, if you want more about that. Remember, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. God loves the world, loves everybody in the world, so it's not an exclusive club. Jesus lives the example to show us what this love is like. And anyone, anywhere who follows that kind of life is actually becoming an embodiment of that very love that God shows to the world. God so loved the world through the people that are following and striving to follow that kind of life. That's what John 3.16 means. Off the Left Eye is Curtis Childs, director, producer, and host. Karen Childs, writer, community manager, and host. Chelsea Odner, writer, production manager, and host. And Jonathan Rose, host and series editor of the NCE. Shada Sullivan is the voice you love in our narrations. Stuart Farmer is our technical director. Matthew Childs, our video art director. Our motion designers are Meng Jong and Jesse Johnson. Reed McArdle made our music. Devin Osblond is our production intern. Cara Dom is our Latin consultant extraordinaire. And Chris Dunn is our digital marketing magician. And you are our much-loved listener. And now you can journey with us all week. Every Monday's Swedenborgen Life episode, including this one, has a week's worth of content lined up to support you in your exploration of these life-changing ideas. All video content premieres at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Off the Left Eye YouTube, Facebook, and Simplecast channels. On Tuesdays, find us on social media or go to offtheleftye.com to get custom downloadable art paired with the week's topic to ground you through the week. On Wednesdays, join us to dig a little deeper into the week's topic with news from heaven. On Thursdays, we want to hear from you. We'll be sharing a new reflection question weekly on our community tab and social media channels. Then join us for Swedenborg Live on Fridays for our panel Q&A show. And listen every Sunday to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to always know what we're up to and what you can look forward to. If you want to help sustain Off the Left Eye's operations, consider becoming a monthly donor today. And right now, we have a matching gift challenge from a very generous donor couple where dollar for dollar up to $10,000 will be matched when you make a new or increased monthly donation. You can provide a direct gift or restrict it to our new Off the Left Eye endowment fund. Giving to the endowment fund is a great way to guarantee that your gifts live on to help Off the Left Eye forever. Go to otle.cosvox.com to become part of our essential community of donors. From all of us here at Off the Left Eye, we thank you.